my pleasure to be joined right now by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson, good afternoon. Well, Jeff, hope you're well. I I am well. What's where where does the bill stand? What's going on on the Senate floor? I was I was kind of wondering whether you'd be able to make this call. Is the Senate still in session debating the COVID bill? Well, we had time agreement to start Votorama around uh, 11:30, and we've taken one vote right now. Nor- normally, once you get into Votorama, there's you know two minutes of debate, equally divided by each side, and you just crank through these these amendments once every you know 15 minutes. We've been on stall now for two or three hours. So uh, I'm not sure what's happening between leadership. They're trying to work something out. Good enough. Senator, let me, let, let's start off. The, um, at your insistence, the, the Senate clerks read the entire text of the 628-page bill. That took approximately 10 hours, knocked off around 2.05 a.m. this morning, D.C. time. What was the point that you were trying to make in requiring the bill to be read? First of all, it was just short of 11 hours, and I was on the floor the entire time. And I didn't even have the bill right off the bat. It took me a little while before I got the bill, and then I just followed along. That's that's the way I decided to read it. Uh, but had I not done that, what uh, Chuck Schumer would have done is he would have limited debate. We probably would have had the Votorama last night before anybody had a chance to read it, before our staffs could have poured through it to try and interpret it. Now, I hope anybody that, that listened to the reading of that bill realized how incomprehensible these bills are on their face. You have to study a piece of legislation, and that takes time. You've got to go into the archives. You've got to get you know, the, the other titles, the other piece of legislation that they refer to that they're striking a, a word out of or, or a sentence out of. You know, th- this is complex information, and Chuck Schumer wanted to jam this through, uh, force, force the voterama, tire everybody out so that uh, last night about 2 or 3 o'clock, and again, we ended up about 2 o'clock, uh, everybody would have been all tired up, tired out. They would have thrown up their hands. The Democrats would have passed it, and we would have burdened our children with another $1.9 trillion without any type of legitimate debate, no deliberate process whatsoever. So I, I just forced at least 11 hours to give everybody a chance to at least read it, to give our staffs a chance to study it, and start crafting uh, effective, hopefully, uh, amendments uh, that we are starting to vote on right now, but now there's some kind of snag holding up right now because, again, this is complex. Well, my, my question, Senator, would be, did, did, did any of that happen? I mean, I, I was looking at, at some of the, the, the C-SPAN stuff and all, and I, I didn't get the sense that there were too many people, too many of your colleagues that were actually you know, reading along like you were doing, you know, line for line. I, I didn't get the sense that there was a lot of people saying, okay, we're going to use this 10 hours to, to, to craft arguments. Everything I read suggests that this is pretty much a done deal. Well, that may be true from the Democrat standpoint, but I had a lot of colleagues that wanted to join me on the floor and I said, no, go home and rest. Uh, you know, I've, I've kind of got a plan for us to uh, make sure that every vote gets, every amendment gets voted on. And their time was much better spent going back to their office, working with their staffs, talking to their staffs about different sections of the bill to craft amendments. So, no, I'm, I'm sure my colleagues, at least on the Republican side, were working pretty long and hard on this. So I, I gave, them that, gave them that 11 hours and it's turning into really 24 hours. And, and, Jeff, you have to understand how insane that is. One of the analogies I'm using is back in 1993, uh, Bill Clinton introduced, uh, you know, through his uh, allies in the Senate, a $19.5 billion supplemental appropriations bill. $19.5 billion. That's pretty controversial back then. $19.5 billion, kind of a stimulus. 
And if you remember, that was right before the economy took off on its own with dot, dot uh, com bubble uh, or, you know, that economy. And they, the Senate debated that $19.5 billion bill for 12 days. In that delivered process, they whittled it down to $4 billion, and the bill passed unanimously. That, that's the way the Senate used to operate. There was a real deliberative process. There, there were amendments that people could actually offer. But this $1.9 trillion monstrosity never even went through committee process. Nobody's seen that other than what we saw the House did, but you know, this is a substitute amendment. There are many uh, similar provisions, but there's, there's all new stuff in, in the Senate version, and that takes time to actually uh, understand it and then, as I said, craft amendments that, that maybe you can get bipartisan support for. You know, this, this is not a COVID relief bill. There is the, fir- the first thing I noticed sitting there listening before I actually had my copy is how many times they mentioned the year 2022 and 2023 and 2025 and 2028. That's not emergency spending. This literally is a Democrat, liberal, progressive wish list of appropriations that they couldn't pass through an annual appropriation process. So they're front loading it and they're, they're passing multi-year appropriations for their their pet projects. Mm-hmm. Now, Senator, there, there have been some changes to this that I assume you approve of that are coming out of the Senate. For example, the, the minimum wage requirements been done away with, the, the, the um, payments to people, the income threshold has been lowered. So, I, I, I mean, is there some good stuff that's at least, at least good changes that are coming out of this that's as a result of, of the Senate having to look at this? Well, just about any change that whittles it down is good, but it doesn't mean that the end result is still going to be good. You know, talk about direct payment checks, Jeff. Let me give you the facts on that. You know, during the depth of the COVID recession, we were down 25 million jobs from the record high number of jobs in January 2020. Right now, we're about 10 million jobs down. And yet the first two uh, tranches of direct payment checks, totaling close to a half a trillion dollars, went to 166 million Americans. Again, we're down 10 million jobs. But the checks went to 166 million Americans. Per capita, real disposable income is up 5.5%. Total savings up $1.6 trillion. The bottom quintile, the lowest 20% of wage earners, on average, receive $45,000 in some kind of transfer payment from you know, close to 100 uh, welfare programs and tax credits. Our economy is just ready to take off, and even liberal economists are a little concerned about a further injection of another $1.9 trillion could spark inflation, overheat the economy. And, and oh, by the way, just a little quick little aside, of the $4 trillion, 18% of our economy that we've already passed for COVID relief, approximately a trillion dollars is still not spent. This makes no sense. If there are, and I don't doubt there are people still hurting. It's because we've done a poor job of directing the relief to the people actually need it. Instead, we sent it to so many people that didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senator, you you were on CNN yesterday or two days ago, and, and, and the, the money quotation was, you, you say you, you think it's obvious that you're the number one target here and that people are out to destroy me. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I think that's true. Again, I was I was uh, reacting to a I couldn't shake Manu Raju, their, their uh, <laughs> Capitol Hill reporter, so he's walking back all the way to the office, and he's just asking me, a bunch of questions. I said, well, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. This is the Saul Alinsky technique. You isolate somebody and you destroy them. I think it's pretty obvious they think they can pick up this U.S. Senate seat. And so they're, they are bound determined to destroy me. So they put words in my mouth. They write articles, as, by the way, Manu did, 
with a number of false claims, things I never said, never did, motives they attribute to me that are just simply not true. You know, they say, I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist. No, I'm not. I'm just seeking the truth. Uh, it, it's, it's actually pretty fascinating to be in my position to know exactly what I said, exactly what I meant, and then watch the mainstream media craft completely false narratives, completely false headlines, and put false claims in their stories that unfortunately, too many, too many Americans, they're unsuspecting, they don't know the truth, they just assume those things are true. Okay, so it's, 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 let, me, let me ask you a couple of those questions, just, just you and I, okay? So with unfiltered, there's, you, there's a lot of headlines. Matter of fact, I have a whole stack of stories saying that, that Senator Ron Johnson believes the, the election was stolen. Do, do you believe the election was stolen? I've never, to my knowledge, used those words. I think there are irregularities that raise legitimate concerns, you know, observers not being able to observe. Uh, again, I, I believe we should not have scornfully dismissed those. I, I think my comms person sent you, for example, my opening statement right. in the hearing that I held. And again, I, I didn't, the title of the hearing wasn't the stolen election. It was examining irregularities of the 2020 election. I think you, know, you have courts that overruled state legislatures. The Constitution grants, actually gives the responsibility to state legislators to set the times, places, and manner of elections. And yet the Ninth Circuit overruled a 30-year law in Arizona. The Maricopa County Board of, of Elections completely ignored the state Senate as they tried to obtain the, the backup on, on election night. So those are legitimate concerns. The fact that the Carter-Baker Commission said that absentee ballots was probably the number one uh, opportunity for fraud, and yet we doubled the absentee ballots while we loosened all these controls. These are legitimate issues, legitimate concerns, and that's all I've ever talked about. But as you just said, people put words in my mouth and say that I think that, that I've said the election was stolen. No, the minute, the minute almost that the Electoral College Grant, you know, voted and gave uh, Vice President Biden 306 votes. I said, yeah, he's president-elect now. And I saw no scenario whatsoever that any of those elector- electoral votes would be disallowed in Congress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how much I, I, I've got a pretty clear record on this. Okay. And one of the other things, then, then related to that, o- over the course of the last week or so, there's been a number of stories out there that either express, say expressly or imply that you you, you perhaps believe that whatever we want to call what happened on January 6th, the, the riots, insurrection, whatever term you want to use, what was caused not by Trump supporters, but maybe by like anti-Trump forces or Antifa or things like that. What, what, how do you really feel about that? Totally. I've never said that. OK, what, what I did is I entered into the record an eyewitness account by a very knowledgeable observer, James Michael Waller. He's a former instructor of the Naval Postgraduate School that former chief of police of the Capitol Hill, uh, Stephen Sun, went to that school. He's current instructor at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and school at Fort Bragg. So he, he, he was there. And before he looked at any news articles whatsoever, he wrote his eyewitness account. And I thought it was pretty interesting because it's a slightly, it's a quite a bit different narrative than what we're hearing in terms of a, you know, thousands of armed insurrectionists. And by the way, I've also amused the fact that you know, when I hear of armed insurrection, I do think of firearms. And of course, the last hearing, I just asked the FBI uh, witness, you know, how many firearms were confiscated? Because you'd think in an armed insurrection, you'd probably confiscate a few firearms, right? She said none. Now, I think Byron New York has reported that later that night, there was one person arrested with a firearm on him, 
So that's one. But again, words matter. And so, no, I have, you know, this J. Michael Waller was talking about four distinct groups of people that didn't fit in to the Trump crowd. And he wrote, just writes about it. He, he also he, he did make the false. He, he falsely or incorrectly presumed that one group might have been, you know, Antifa dressed up as Trump supporters. But again, that was that was his conclusion. Okay. And, and he would even admit it's wrong today. Right. Because now the evidence is that it was the Proud Boys, it was Old Keepers. As we gather information, we're, we're getting, we're, we're starting to assemble what actually happened. I'm just trying to determine the truth, and I think the way you get the truth is get eyewitness testimony from different people, different perspectives, different vantage points. I think what we will find out too is is it really was uh, a a group of very determined, you know, they they. Definitely were communicating with each other, people that knew how to use a crowd and funnel them into certain areas and, and basically turn a, a small percentage of that enormous crowd into the mob that stormed the Capitol. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, in general, we're finding more and more. I mean, Norwich Times writes about that. Washington Post writes about that. There's an eyewitness from Slate. So, again, I, what I entered in the record, I think, is going to prove to be pretty accurate assessment, maybe a, a couple incorrect uh, assumptions by that one eyewitness account, but I, I never said that I agreed with the eyewitness account. I just entered his account in the record, and now all of a sudden, I'm a conspiracy theorist. Again, that's the false claims of the news media bent on trying to, again, they're trying to marginalize me. No, I don't have a persecution complex on this. It's just what is happening, and I'm, I'm, I'm an eyewitness to it. I know what I mean, and I see the false claims that the news media attaches to me. Right. To, to that point, Senator, before we move on, I, I do the, the, when you, when you made the, the remarks about the, the armed insurrection, which drew all sorts of attention, I, I think, last week, I, I guess my, my question would be, does, is it a distinction without a difference? I mean, we, we all saw what happened on January 6th and, and we saw insurrection, riot, whatever term we want to use. D- does it in trying to assess it, does it really make any difference whether there was one gun or three guns or whatever? I mean, we saw a mob that stormed the Capitol. I guess my question is, by getting hung up on that word "armed," do we do we invite do you invite some of the the criticism, saying, "Okay, well, he's he's missing the forest for the trees," perhaps? No, no, actually, it's very important. But again, it's it, it's it's really bizarre because all I was doing when I said that is picking up on a point that the. Because I was talking about the trial. This was Monday after the trial. Right. We just gotten back. My impression of the trial. So, you know, one thing that did resonate with me was when the president's defense team said, armed insurrection, is that really the right term for what happened? Um, but the reason it's important now in hindsight, I mean, the way the, all of a sudden that became a national news story. I mean, that, nothing shocks me, but that actually surprised me. But the reason they're pushing back is because there is a narrative that the left wants. And the narrative is, generally, the 74 million Americans that, vote, that voted for President Trump are potentially domestic terrorists and armed insurrectionists. Mm-hmm. And so they want, they want to create this impression of people that weren't there, that you only see the, the video of the points of right. conflict. They, they don't see the tens of thousands of Trump supporters that actually were pretty festive. You know, one, one advantage I have over, for example, Senator Klobuchar, I've been to Trump rallies. I know the people. But the reason I wasn't concerned on January 6th is these are Trump supporters. They love law enforcement. They would never break a law. They love America. They are joyful. They are festive at Trump rallies. This is a big Trump rally. But it got turned into by these provocateurs, by these agitators, 
It is something very ugly that I completely condemn. But I think it is important. If, if people are trying to create an impression that there literally were thousands of armed insurrectionists trying to violently overthrow the U.S. government, I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is you had these agitators, I don't know how many dozens, and a, and a crowd that, you know, and part, part of the eyewitness testimony is a friendly crowd that all of a sudden gets tear gas, blow, you know, shot into it. You know, a tear gas canister hitting a young woman in the face, opening up blood. The mood of that crowd changed pretty dramatically. I'm not blaming law enforcement, but I'm just I'm explaining how could this happen with the Trump crowd? Well, you get some agitators. They may be Trump supporters, but they're not Trump supporters that I know. And they're not Trump supporters that I would ever want to accept into my tent. And I would condemn their actions. Senator, you are up for re-election in 2022, and as we talked about earlier, are perhaps the, the number one target of Democrats in an effort to swing a seat. Are you planning to run for re-election? And if you haven't decided, when do you think we can expect that decision? Well, I truthfully have not decided, and I don't think I have to decide any side anytime soon, Kurt, honestly. The, the only people who want me to decide right now are consultants. And, you know, particularly the consultants of other people that may want to run for the U.S. Senate seat, they'd like to start raising money and start making money right off the bat. I think I'll save everybody a lot of money by just just holding tight and make a decision where I'm ready to. Remember, Jeff, I I didn't decide to run until the end of April 2010, announced mid-May. That seemed to work out pretty well. These elections are way too long. They spend way too much money. And in the last couple cycles, some of these U.S. Senate seats have cost a hundred million dollars, that is grotesque. It is absurd, and it's money primarily all wasted. So I'll, I'll save everybody a lot, lot, lot of money, and I'll, I'll make my decision when I think I need to. Well, and Senator, that's your right. Can I, can I ask you a follow-up on that as long as we're, we're talking? And that, that's, of course, your right. But as of now, there are two Democrats who have announced that they're running against you, and there, there's a whole slew of others that I guess are going to, you know, coming forward, they're all raising money. On the Republican side, I think everybody's waiting to see what you decide to do. If if you wait a year, you wait a year and a half, whatever that's going to be, that, that's a lost opportunity for candidates on the no, Republican Jeff, side. Jeff, it really isn't. Because people in a primary aren't going to be able to raise much money anyway. And you saw, when it comes right down to it, you're going to have the money you need. I mean, look at how much money they raised just for Georgia. So no, I just uh, that's just not true. And, and trust me, I've I've raised money. I, I know how the game works, and I also know how the only people benefiting right now would be the consultants. But no, let, let Democrats knock themselves out. You know, the more the merrier. But let them waste money. Let, let them run a bunch of you know spend millions of dollars attacking me. You know, I'll take the slings and arrows. So no timetable on that decision as of this point. No, I, I really don't have to decide anytime soon. It's just not necessary. God. Senator Johnson, I really do expect, I, I know that you've got a lot going on, and I really do appreciate you spending some time and answering some of these questions. I hope we can set up a time sometime in the future to revisit some other stuff and maybe even some lighter things, if that's possible. I'm not sure there's going to be a whole lot of light things here in the future, but Jeff, I always appreciate the opportunity. Okay, appreciate take care. Take care. Thank you very much.